We go to church to pray, but we don't believe God lives in the church. God is everywhere. To the ancient Jewish person, especially the Jewish person of Jesus' time, God lived in the temple. That's why the temple was so important to them. And, and you know, let's not draw any modern-day political analogies, but why Israel is so important and Jerusalem is so important to the, to the Jewish people. They believed that, that God dwelt on the temple mount in the temple. You know, things that we've shared in past Bible studies, this is why only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. Remember, you have the, sorry ladies, you have the court of the women, the courts of the Gentiles, right? Then where the Jewish men would pray. And then you had, you know, the altar, and inside that was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest would go in, and only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and they would tie a string around him in case he dropped dead. And they would just drag his body out of the Holy of Holies because he was in the presence of God. So to speak against the temple, you're speaking against God. And this is where God is. So now go back and look at chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Specifically 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not left, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And what Jesus is doing is showing the break with the Jewish temple but he's also inaugurating something new and powerful. Um, keep your finger on Mark 13, and I want you to go to the book of Revelation. At the very, very end. Chapter 19, Revelation. What chapter? 19. 19. I, I beg your pardon, I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 21. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Welcome. Now, as you're looking for Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, I want, to think, I want you to think about what I just said. To the Jewish person, God dwelt in the temple. Now, Listen to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 22. This is the vision St. John the Evangelist is having of heaven. What are the first few words of verse 22? Any? But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty temple. That's it, right there. There's the contrast. Do you get it? Here's the Jewish people saying, well, in this brick and stone temple that we've constructed on the Temple Mount, that's where God lives. In heaven, there is no temple. What is the temple? The, the dwelling place? He's there. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So the break is complete. Now go back to Mark chapter 13. So that's what Jesus means when he says, there will not be one stone left upon it. That, that, that concept that God is contained in this building, gone forever in the person of Jesus. He is the temple of God. All right, Mark, keep going, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 3. Right. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all things, these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Let's stop there for a minute. Um, interesting note, the Mount of Olives is geographically higher than the temple. All right, There's a new authority. There's a new teaching here. Um, so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to Gethsemane and Olives and some things here in a little bit. Um, what do you notice about the inner circle in verse 3? Who's joined? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And Andrew. 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 You know, I don't know, I don't have any great teaching here other than, good for you, Andrew, you got into the inner club. Up to this point, it's always been Peter, James, and John. Now all of a sudden, Andrew gets thrown in. Peter brought him along. Yeah, that makes the Greeks really happy because, of course, we claim that Andrew founds the Church of Constantinople, so we go, yay for us. I want you to listen to the question that they ask. Tell us when this will be, and what are the signs? They want to know when the end is going to come, and what signs should they be looking for? Now I want you, Mark, I want you to read Jesus' answer again in verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed 
that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Did he answer their question? No. no. They want to know, what should we be looking for? What are the signs? When is this all going to happen? What does Jesus say you should be focused on? Correct doctrine. Correct doctrine. Look carefully at verse 5. Take heed that no one leads you astray. One of the themes, and I'm going to kind of give you the punchline here, so that way it's, we're going to be reading the murder mystery backwards. One of the themes of chapter 13, to a certain extent 14, but definitely chapter 13. When is Jesus going to come back? It doesn't matter. That question for Christians should be completely irrelevant. What's important is, are you ready? If Jesus showed up tonight at 7.14, would we, would we be ready to face eternal judgment? We have to be ready at all times. You never know. So instead of looking for, oh, what is it? Oh, there's an earthquake in Turkey. Oh, and there's a... And people love that because it's fun. I mean, that stuff is great fun. Oh, you know, in Revelation it says this. And, oh, a plane crash happened in Dubai. And, and I don't know how a plane crashes get prophesied in the Bible, but people can twist this thing in the pretzels. Instead of worrying about the signs, and, and this is, remember, you don't care what I think. What does the text say? This is what the apostles said. Tell us the signs. And Jesus said, don't worry about the signs. Be true to your doctrine. Make sure no one leads you astray. Many will be coming saying, I am he. He's already telling us there's going to be false messiahs. So things like having proper belief, these things are important. Mark, keep going. Verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. All right, to the Jewish person, the end would have been the war, where we throw off the shackles of Rome. And Jesus is saying, eh, that's not really the end. Keep going. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves. Oh, time out. Uh, how does your verse 8 end? These are the beginnings of sorrows. All right. And for me, I get this is the beginning of birth pangs. Does any of your translations say that as well? Birth pangs. Birth pangs. Birth pangs. Birth pang, the, the, the pain of giving birth. Right. Oh. What is the Greek? That's it, what is it? If you can read verse 8 for us. What's that? This is the same like they say in the verse. Yeah. The, it's important. It, 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 Chapter 13, Chapter 13, verse 8. Sure. The word Jesus uses is birth pangs. And, and men, we're on shaky ground here. A bunch of men are going to sit here and tell the women about giving birth. Yeah. We can do kidney stones. Um, think about, and men, let's just shut up here and let the women talk. John, you went through this whole, you know, a couple of times. We just shut up. Just, just let the women talk. Um, anybody want to talk about the pain of giving birth? I certainly don't want to think about that. But, yeah. Well, they, everybody says it's the worst pain you will ever suffer. The thing is, it's intermittent. Doesn't stay, you know, it comes and goes, so it lets you go. And outside of those episodes where you remember a few of the contractions, once the baby comes, all is forgotten because of the joy of having a child in new life. Only a man would say that, but hopefully, it's true. you're agreeing with that me. Is true. And it's not like kidney pain, kidney pain stays with you for hours on end. So, that's real punishment. All right. <laughs> Bringing it back to the text, what's important here is what Jesus is saying is things are going to get really bad. There's going to be wars, earthquakes, famine. Nation will rise up against nation. There will be earthquakes, famines. That sounds familiar. Yeah. But these are the birth pains. And when it's over, there's going to be the beauty of the heavenly life. All right, Mark, keep going. Pick it up in verse 9. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand 
or premeditating what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, that he who endures to the end shall be saved. To whom is St. Mark speaking right now? Us. Us, but historically I think this is important. The community that's reading his gospel. By 65 AD, the church was under some pretty serious persecution. Uh, you had Caligula, who had already come and gone, and thank God he was assassinated by his own mother, I think, uh, killed him. Um, you had some fairly intense persecutions. It wasn't the, the huge persecutions of Nero. That started, I think, around 66 or 67 AD. But by 65 AD, when St. Mark's Gospel appeared, you already had some very serious persecutions where Christians were being dragged before the Roman authority and, in many cases, thrown into the arena to be murdered. So I want you to go back now and look at it. Mark, I want you to read it again. And in particular, uh, verse 9, when he says, You'll be, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear testimony. The Greek is martyria. What word do you recognize in martyria? Martyrs. The word martyr doesn't mean they died. They did. But it means they bore witness. That's why they died. That's why they died. Read it again now. Now, with this context of the people who are going to be reading this Gospel of St. Mark, many of whom either know people or have had family members who have been arrested. And, and let's make it even worse. Jump, Mark, I'm going to give you a little running start, then we're going to go back to uh, the, the whole passage. Look at verse 12. Brother will deliver up brother to death and father his children, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This happened. And pagan families where one became a Christian, it was not only was it not uncommon, but the person who actually turned in their own family member would be honored by Rome. Ah, what a good Roman citizen you are. You turned in your own son, and we tortured him and killed him because he's become one of these Christians. So within families, you had brothers betraying their own brothers. Parents bringing their children to the governor. My child became a Christian. Well, I got a dumb question. So brothers going against brother and children against their parents and all them people to death, but the people who are doing the killing are the ones that are going to endure to the end. No, the, the people... The people, And that's what, a great, great question. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking about the people who are being persecuted. Because remember something. Um, um, interesting question as we lead into... If, if we can keep it moving tonight, we're going to get to the denial by Peter. We'd all like to think that in our moment of trial, I'm going to be strong and firm. Everyone, think about the Jesus' closest 12 friends. One of them betrays him. Ten run like scared rabbits. And the other denied that he even knew him. And their moment of trial, they didn't fare very well. Um... We adorn the walls of our churches and our you know, boardrooms with icons of the martyrs. These are the ones who endured. i got to believe there are probably a few who didn't. Before I get to Pandeli, one of my favorite stories is the martyrdom of the Holy Forty Martyrs of Sebastia. Um, it takes place at their, their feast day. I want to say it's March 9th. Um, Sebastia was a part in northern Europe, I think it was northern France, very, very cold in March. There were 40 uh, soldiers in a particular regiment who had all converted to Christianity. And exactly. Uh, you know the story, Lily. And so they were discovered. They were interrogated. They were tortured. They said, no, you know, they weren't going to renounce their faith. And their, their method of death, they were made to strip naked and go out and stand on the ice all night long on a frozen lake. And to make it even worse, uh, the Romans built fires on the shore. And spent the night saying, hey, all you got to do is re re renounce your faith. Come on over. Come on over. One of the 40 couldn't take it anymore. And he renounced his faith in Christ. One of the Romans, watching the other 39, said, whatever these 39 have, I want it. And he said, I'm joining them. And 40 went on the ice. 40 will die on the ice. And so that's, you know, we talk about the 40 martyrs of Sebastia. But that's one of the few instances where we hear about somebody who did, in fact, under torture, renounce his faith. 
St. Mark is saying to his church, he who endures to the end will be saved. You, you can't give up. It, it, it's going to hurt, but it's the birth pains. It's like giving birth. It's going to hurt. There's going to be torture, but you have eternity. Well, Lily, first time they're going. Lily. Yeah, we have a beautiful tradition in Russia. They make 40 birds on that piece. We really? Birds made of dough and bake it. Wow. Oh, what's it made of? Bows? That is beautiful. Birds made out of dough. Birds or bows? Birds. Birds. Oh, B-I-R-D-S. Not bows. No. So that they out. Talk about the 40 bows. So semantics is really important. The whole Bible. He who endures until the end. To Mark's point, it's not he who survives, but he who does not renounce. The Romans survived. But they never they renounce their faith. Yeah. Well, that brings to mind this movement in certain Christian circles that call the rapture. Yeah. And it's an antithesis with the scriptures. So people believe I mean I've heard many people say, Oh my god, I'll be taken out before I'm like, why? And it goes it's like the opposite because in Revelation it tells you even Paul it tells you the ones who remain at the end, that's the ones who are going to be rewarded. This Not the ones who take off before, because the ones who took off before, from the days of Noah and, uh, what was the other guy? Noah's. The Bremen Stone. Uh, Lot. Yeah. Weren't the good guys. They were the bad guys who were taken before. Early, so I was like, "You guys do not want to wish something like that." Well, what, what's interesting is you bring up the rapture, and you know, that's the idea that before the final tribulation, this is all in the Book of Revelation, that in order to spare his people, God will take them out. And you know, it was very common uh, back in the seventies. There'd be bumper stickers of "In case of rapture, this car will not be manned." You know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it always kind of amused me as an Orthodox Christian that these are people who who claim to be Christian, who claim to be Bible readers. Where in the Bible does it say that, that the martyrs didn't suffer? It doesn't say that they suffered terribly. It's just after the suffering came their eternal life. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of rapture, which is a 19th century invention, basically, uh, the doctrine of rapture is, is completely not existed before the late or mid 19th century. Um, the doctrine of rapture is really a doctrine of fear. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, like I, I've said to you, I want to be a martyr, I just don't want it to hurt very badly. <laughs> Um, if, if there's a lot of torture involved, I, I, martyrdom's not for me. Um, but if, it, if it's over quickly, sign me up. Um, the rapture is that kind of fear doctrine. I don't want to hurt too much. All right, I, we, we've, we've talked enough about this passage. Let's go on to verse 14. Let's throw it over to Judy. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea to the mountains. Let him who is on the house stop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So, as I said, we're going to go through this pretty quickly because I'm going to get to some of the meteor stuff. Um, Mark is not being particularly subtle here. When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Caligula built a statue of himself and put it in the Jewish temple. Wow. So Mark is not exactly this. <laughs> He's not being particularly subtle here. Anyone, I mean, even non-Christians, if you lived in anywhere near the Jerusalem, you knew what Caligula had done. And so when he talks about the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, wink, wink, absolutely everybody understood exactly what he was talking about. That's it. He's, Antiochus Epiphanes did the same thing, uh, the, the Greek ruler of that time. They put statues of themselves in the temple, and they did it primarily to irritate the Jews. All right, Judy, keep going. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not, has not been seen since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord hath shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Is that what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. he removes them? Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. I want to keep moving because I really want to get into chapter 14, so Judy, keep going. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. By the way, when does the sun also darken biblically? Jesus died two days from now. We don't have to, wow, did that happen last Thursday? It happened two days after, he, after Jesus spoke these words. In the middle of the day, the sun went down, the sun darkened while Jesus was on the cross. The the end time. My point here is the end times have already begun, and the ground shook. And the ground shook. Exactly correct. The end times. When people, are, what sign? When? When? But they've already begun. And as Christians, we shouldn't care. We don't care when he comes. My job is to be ready. It's his job to come. It's my job to be ready. Judy, keep going. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. From the farthest part of the earth, the farthest part of heaven. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. Ah, the fig tree comes back to visit us. <laughs> he loves his fig trees. Before, the problem with the fig tree was it had leaves but no fruit. Mm-hmm. Now, now he's using the fig tree in another manner. Go ahead, Judy. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you will know what sum- that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Let's stop there on verse 30 for a minute because this is important. Now, and just to, to, to close off that whole fig tree image, now what he is saying, there's a second use of the fig tree. The first is got to have fruit, not just leaves. But now he is saying, read the seasons. When you see the leaves, you know something. Right. Well, now, when you see these things, know that the end is near. When the sun goes down, well, that's going to happen in two days. The end times are already upon us, gang. We, if Jesus were to come tonight at 8.30, we should not be surprised. Um, I am not one of these people who says, oh, there's wars and there's earthquakes. There's always been wars and earthquakes. What I look at, uh, and now this is me just speaking personally, when I look at the craziness in our, in our world, that what is... What is evil is not necessarily good. Morals have gone out the door. I believe we are in the end times. And I'm not and I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he came back. Because things are pretty weird out there right now. And I when people talk, well, you know, the pendulum will swing back. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That pendulum's pretty far out there right now. I don't know. I don't think there's gonna be some gradual return back to a morality, a, a, a gradual coming back. But anyway, to bring it back to the text, we are in the end times. The question that I have for you is verse 30. What do you make of verse 30? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. What generation is he talking about? He said this in 33 AD. Mark wrote it in 65 AD. We're sitting here in 2023. Yeah, John, you just said it. It's like believers at all times. We, the generation of the human race, the believers. He's not talking about, you know, typically... um, Genealogists will say a generation is 20 years. Well, he's talking about the generation of the human race. All right. Um, Jim, real quick, you said about the end of time that things like looking really bad. Uh, Alexander Schwemann, he said that when Christ died, part of what happened was the world died. And that there was a death that took place. I don't know if you want to comment. Like, and then he's saying that essentially the world itself died. And, and the yeah. rebirth will come when he comes. Okay. So we're in that interim period that the, okay. the end time, has the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Yeah. Go back to the very beginning of the gospel. Of, of the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Okay. It's here. That The Greek verb is past tense. It's here. So it's already begun. I'm going to read you know, these last couple because this kind of ties up the whole theme. Verse 32, but of that day, or that, I mean, that day, that, that specific time when Jesus comes back, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You've got to think about that one for a while. Yeah. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. 
we'll get to the analogy here in a minute. What do you make of that comment that not, a, the, not even the sun knows when the hour is? God will decide. God will decide. And in his divinity, of course, Jesus knew. Maybe in, his, in that human part of him, he didn't. St. Theophilact, and I've quoted him quite a bit through the study, the Bulgarian, has kind of an interesting spin of this. He says it's like when a father holds something, you know, kind of secret from his child, and the, the child says, what's in your hand? And if he doesn't show up, the child cries. So the child has to say, see, the dad has to say, there's nothing in my hand. Oh, now the child's happy. He, Theophilact, the Bulgarian, says Jesus is kind of treating the disciples like they're his children. Uh, even I don't know. Because if he doesn't do that, the disciples, well, come on, tell us, Jesus. I can't tell you what's a secret. You can tell us. I'm not going to gossip in the neighborhood. You can tell me. So to kind of put that whole thing to rest, and that's what Theophilact is saying. Jesus just says, I don't even know. Well, he wasn't with the Father yet. Yeah. Again, all, all distinct possibilities. The key here is stop trying to figure out at what day, time, and minute Jesus is going to come back. Uh, pick it up. He, here's the analogy is verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. If we said one thing tonight, the theme of chapter 13, watch. Anybody here? Um, I know your son's obviously Air Force. My son is Air Force. Anybody else in the military in this room? What would happen if you were on guard duty and your, your commanding officer showed up and you were asleep? Uh-oh. In the ancient uh, army, you'd be put to death. That's punishable by death. Because if you were asleep on guard duty, the enemy can come over the gate. That's a jail uh, Yeah. And today you'd still be jailed. You'd be court-martialed. That's um, why they exclude the possibility that the body was stolen. When, when yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, was, was a, Absolutely correct. So the theme here is watch. All right. I wanted to get through that, and we did in, in the proper good time, because now we can jump into chapter 14. And John, why don't you read for us? After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might taken by trickery, and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. All right, let's hold there these first two introductory verses. There were two festivals, distinct originally, that have now been combined into one by the time of Jesus. The one is a week-long feast of unleavened bread, which would be, had begun on the same day as Passover. Both would involve a solemn ritual meal, and that's going to be important when we get to the Last Supper. Um, on that day, the Paschal lambs would be sacrificed, uh, sacrificed. So the Jewish way of speaking, when they say after two days, it implies the day after tomorrow. It's not like, so it's not like three days now. When they say after two days, the Jewish way of being, like if, we, if I said that today, tonight's Tuesday night, I'd be talking about Thursday. Um, we are here setting, when you look at the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, putting all these calendars together, we are on... Um, Wednesday. This is holy, what we would call Holy Wednesday night. Um, as a side note, uh, uh, Theophilact again comments, this is why we fast on Wednesdays. Because it was then that the Sanhedrin had met in council to condemn him to death. It's not because that was the day Jesus betrayed him. It wasn't because that was when Judas betrayed him. That would have been Thursday. Thursday. That's the next Thursday. Thursday. Oh, Friday was his crucifixion. Friday he was, yeah. He was, yeah the, the Last Supper would have taken place on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, going through the night, the trial, you know, would have been, say, from like midnight till about 8 in the morning. When they say that at the third hour he was crucified, that would have been 9 o'clock on Holy Friday. So this is, this is Wednesday, and that's the next one. That's why we fast on Wednesdays. The point here is all, all the, the, the usual suspects are finally here. The chief priest scribes, interesting, they know the crowd. Don't do it during the feast. This is a, this is a very popular man. He has garnered, garnered quite a following. We cannot arrest him publicly. We got to get him quietly by night. And that decision was made on Wednesday night. So keep going, uh, John. 
And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were ignorant among themselves and said, Why was this fragment oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. All right. Some notes there as we go back. Let's go back to verse 3. They're in the house of Simon, the leper. A woman comes with an alabaster flask of a pure, pure nard, and she breaks it. Um, we've all seen you know, the, the, the traditions where you, know, you have a, 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 a toast, you glass, and you throw the glass in the fireplace and break it. That's a celebratory thing. We only use this glass once you know, for this wedding, and then we'll never drink from it again. And, and to symbolize that, we break it. This is what would be done when somebody was anointed for the dead. The vase that they put the ointment, that, that uh, nard in, would be smashed afterwards because it should never be used for any other purpose. This was used to anoint my dead father who I loved. I'm not going to take this and put flowers in it tomorrow and put it on my dining room table. I'm going to break it. So that, that, that's the first point. So she breaks this ointment. Um, in past sessions, we've talked about verse 5. A denarii is what? How much is a denarius? One day's wage. How much did this ointment cost? Three, three whole year. This is a whole year's salary. The question, the question is, what drove that woman to do so? Because there is nothing that foretells us prior to that that she's coming, that she's aware of nothing. Yeah. She just shows up and does this. And as you said to your point, that is done to anoint a dead body. Mm -hmm. So basically she's telling everyone, Jesus is going to die. And nobody put two and two together. You just covered the last, the next five minutes of my of my notes, and I appreciate that. No, no. <laughs> I'm teasing you, but you're exactly correct on everything you just said. And I'm going to add one more point. Is there a hint of resurrection in here? And the answer is obviously yes. But what is it? When do you anoint the dead body? After they're dead. After they're dead. Mm -hmm. Very often, you would go to the grave to do it. Remember. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Why did the women go to the tomb on Sunday morning? Why do they have to go on Sunday morning? Jesus died on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. He's buried. It was the Sabbath. You can't do work. He died on Friday. As soon as sundown hits on Friday, you're not allowed to do work. That takes you to Saturday. Are you going to go to the graves on Saturday night when it's dark? I'm 59 years old. I'm a martial artist. I'm not going to a cemetery at nighttime. I'd still be afraid. Oh, come on. It's a lot of fun. You can go. I'll, I'll, I'll stand outside waving a pantalli as I drive by. And, and so this is why the women went on Sunday morning. They had to go and anoint the body. Why is this woman anointing the body now? Because when they go to the tomb, he ain't going to be there. He's going to be resurrected. There's a little hint and, 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 I, and I'm, I, I keep making this point because why did Jesus talk to Why did he specifically, look at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told. Why did he make such a big deal about this anointing? Well, part of it, it's, it's a beautiful gesture from this woman. But I also think there is a little hint of resurrection here. She's anointing his body now because when they get to the tomb on Sunday morning, he's going to be gone. He will already be resurrected. Now we get the grumbling. Uh, St. Mark doesn't go into great detail here in verse 4 and 5. Um, John, in his gospel, is very specific. Who was doing the most complaining? Judas. Mm -hmm. Why? He's a thief. He's a thief, and he used to steal the money. He's the money man. He was the money, he was the money guy. He was the treasurer for the apostolic band, and he used to steal the money that was put in there. So, you know, he, Judas is clearly motivated by money. But even the other apostles are kind of grumbling. 
And Jesus signals him, let him alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. He makes that comment that has always struck me. Um, you know, long before I ran Boca Helping Hands, as a priest, I was always very, very focused on poverty programs. And all my parishes, you know, we always did food drives, and, you know, every parish does food drives. We did, uh, you know, I, I took youth groups to, you know, build homes for the homeless. I've, just, my, I've always been oriented towards street ministries, and I'm, I'm just struck by Jesus' words, you will always have the poor with you. Me, you will not have always. And so we do what we can, but we also have to keep our focus on Jesus Christ at all times. All right, the anointing of Bethany is done. Let's pick up verse 10. And here's, and I, I wish I'd brought my Holy Week book, but you know what? You're going to have a packed house in Holy Week tonight this year because everybody's going to come to hear that verse 10. Um, they are powerful. If you have a Holy Week book at home, go home tonight and just read the hymns for Holy Tuesday night. And, and, and here's the juxtaposition. We just finished this beautiful story of the woman who's anointing his feet and Jesus out. From, for time to memorial, they're going to tell this story. Now here comes Judas. It's the hymn of the Cassiani woman. Or the Cassiani nun. Yeah. Yeah. That's that night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, Edini, why don't you pick up in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. That's one of these things that you just kind of have to sit at and really think about. They didn't go to Judas. He went to them. He approached them. Keep going. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And let's stop here and deal with one thing right now because... Uh, if anybody should be, you know, spending say, ha, 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 I got it, it should be Mary Lou at this point. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's just deal with this issue once and for all. The Roman Catholic Church continues to use unleavened bread. They use wafers when they do communion. The Orthodox Church uses leavened bread. We use artos. Uh, what, what do you call the holy bread in, in Arabic? Uzban. Yeah, that. That. <laughs> holy bread. Holy bread. I'll go with holy bread. Well, why are we using leavened bread when he specifically just said the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Do the Roman Catholics have it right? And, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a big deal about bread or, or wafers. The issue is, was the Last Supper a Passover meal? And there's lots of theories on this. And the very strong possibility is it was not. Remember, there are two feasts happening at the same time. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And one of the meals would be called a Habura meal which a rabbi would have with his disciples, and it would have had bread and wine. It is very likely that what happened was a Habura meal. But in any event, the Orthodox and the Catholics, from the very beginning, went on divergent tracks. The Roman Church used unleavened bread, the wafers. The Orthodox Church uses leavened bread. Either one is perfectly acceptable because of what we're going to see when we get into the text itself. So we've dealt with that. He didn't even move on. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Whenever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may, may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where is what guest room? My. Where is my guest room? The text, the original text says, where is my guest room? What does this passage reveal? Jesus is in control of the entire thing. Think about, you're going to go into the city, you're going to meet a man carrying a jar of water. How did he know this? Because he's in control, ladies and gentlemen. Why is this so important? At any point, Jesus could have stepped out. I'm not going through this crucifixion business. He's in control of the whole thing, knowing that it's going to lead to his own horribly painful death. Look at the words to the householder. Verse 14, and wherever he enters, say to the householder, not a teacher, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? This is very powerful. All right, you need to keep going. Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went off and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Keep going, you're doing great. In the evening he came with the twelve. 
Now, evening would have been five, six o'clock. At sundown, the next day has begun. So now we're talking Thursday night, somewhere between five, six, just, just prior to, to sunset. Because if it was already after sunset, he would have said at night. All right, keep going. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and I, said, I want to stop there because it's, there's a painful thing here of, of Jesus' passion. One by one, when all the disciples are saying, am I the one that's going to betray you? What does that say about them? Did anybody see the movie Whiplash? Yeah. The jazz drummer? There was an absolutely, uh, I mean, I forget the actor's name, he was brilliant, he won the Academy Award for it. There was a scene in there that I loved where he, he's, he's, if you haven't seen the movie, he's this tyrannical, horrible monster of a jazz band director and these and then it's a prep school these are high school kids and these kids are practicing and he's like and he's screaming and he throws things and he berates and abuses and he looks at it's like the trombone section and he says okay one of you was off who was it and then this one kid you know, nobody says what he goes I one of you was off by you know, a court. who was it and finally this one kid goes well was it me and he goes get out and he throws him out of the band and the kid leaves, and you know, there's a couple breathing a sigh of relief. And the director looks at the other guy and says, it was you. But the fact that he didn't know that he was on pitch, he doesn't belong here either. He's a horrible director. Is it I? How could they not know? How can they not? Because their own faith is so weak. As, as, they're questioning as, themselves. They're questioning themselves as going to be painfully evident in the next 10 hours. Between now, as I said, you know, the time is important now. It's, it's Thursday night, 5, 6, 6.30, somewhere in there. Between now and Friday morning at roughly 6 o'clock when Jesus, the torture begins and the, you know, the road to, to Golgotha, every one of these closest friends of his are going to run or, or betray or deny him. That question, is it I? And this is one of those things, this is one of the reasons why I love Bible study so much. We've heard this passage a hundred times. If you've been to Holy Week, you hear it five times during Holy Week. And you never really think about it. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? How could they not know? How is their own faith so weak? Even now, three years with him, and they still haven't figured it out. He didn't keep going. He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. And this, um, don't make more of this than it is. This is very typical uh, eating habits in ancient Israel. In fact, in the Middle East, you still do it. You, you dip into a bowl with bread. And you do this with family and friends. You don't have a bunch of strangers that are dipping into your food bowl. <laughs> the point here being... One of my closest circle is going to do this. Somebody who's dipping in the same bowl with me. All right, keep going. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe <clears throat> to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. All right. Oh, it would be better for him had he had never been born. Let's very quickly, because I, I want to keep things moving a little bit, let's deal with the Judas question, which we can, we've talked about, and we did the Gospel of John. Very quickly. Judas had absolute free will. He was not God's pawn, as contemporary man would like. The modern man is very uncomfortable with the poor bad Judas. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar, the central character is not Jesus. Judas. It's Judas. Judas is infinitely more interesting in Jesus Christ Superstar than Jesus is. Uh, he's got better songs. He's got better, you know. And, and, his, and his great song is, you know, you used me. You know, you knew this. You knew, and here, you know, oh, poor Judas. And in fact, when Judas hangs himself in Jesus Christ Superstar, the chorus, you hear them, poor old Judas. Oh, we have to feel so sorry for Judas because he was God's father. No, he wasn't. He was in full, full accountability for his actions. He didn't have to do what he did. 
somebody was eventually going to betray Jesus. It didn't have to be Judas. So we're not letting Judas off the hook here. So I want to, I'm going to deal with that once and for all. Now we get to the central part of this, this whole night. I want to go back and very briefly remind you what I said to you five, six weeks ago. The one miracle that Jesus performed that all four evangelists put in was the multiplication of the loaves. Mm-hmm. And remember the verbs. He took, Bless. blessed, broke, broke gave. gave. Irini, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We're going to stop here and just kind of reflect for a couple of minutes. Um, I've always said God has a very strange sense of humor. There are no accidents. I don't believe in coincidence. Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. I am in no way at all surprised that we are having this Bible study tonight one week away from Thanksgiving. In the Greek, when we talk about Eucharist, the word is ephkaristia, which means Thanksgiving. Giving thanks, yeah. The giving of thanks. That meal that we do, that Eucharistic meal, which is the central part of both Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox Church, it is a meal of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Well, the obvious thing that we're focusing on tonight and then when we close off after <coughs> after the Thanksgiving break is our salvation, the death of Jesus on the cross. When we stand in that line to receive Eucharist, Ephkaristia, Thanksgiving, when we stand in line every Sunday to receive Holy Communion, we are remembering, we are not just remembering, we're re-experiencing the death of Jesus all over again. We're there. We're, at the, we're, we're in this upper room with the apostles. We're at the cross. We're at the empty tomb. We're there. We're, we're, we're looking backwards and bringing the past into the present. But I want you to look carefully at Jesus' words of verse 25. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 19, after the Hallelujah Chorus, we get this. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up, the 24 elders, blah, 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 amen, hallelujah. Handel takes this and goes crazy. Um, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many thunder peals, crying hallelujah. We get it, hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with, the, with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't it interesting? When we talk about the joy in heaven, the image that they use is what? another meal when we talk about Eucharist eating is pretty important to us you can't live without doing it when you eat something you consume it you take it into you and so when we look at the heavenly rejoicing it's, a, it's a, another meal and it's a celebratory meal it's the marriage supper of the lamb now I want you to go back to Mark truly I say to you I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God when you're standing in line to receive communion, you're remembering everything Jesus did, and you're giving thanks. You're remembering something that hasn't happened yet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And you're giving thanks. You're giving thanks for what he did. You're giving thanks for what he's about to do. You're giving thanks for the past. And you're giving thanks for the future. We're already in that beautiful timelessness that is the divine liturgy and the mass, and that beautiful timelessness, past and future collapse into the present. We are at one and the same time standing at the Last Supper 
and standing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're his bride, by the way. I have no problem being a bride. I'm totally okay with that because he's our groom. Two glorious meals, one future, one past, both bringing about the joy of eternal salvation, collapsing into the present moment in that church, receiving communion from your priest, and our only human action is to just simply give thanks. So next Thursday, when you sit around your table and we stuff ourselves with turkey and then go watch football, which is pretty much what we do on Thanksgiving, I just want you to hear a little small voice saying, that's not really Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving Day is every Sunday when we're in church. Thanksgiving Day is every Sunday when we're, we're standing in line. And our Thanksgiving meal is not a turkey. It's lamb. Oh, my God, we're Greeks. <laughs> Your Thanksgiving meal is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's not turkey and ham and, and, and green bean casserole. It is, it is these two meals that have come together, and all we can do is give thanks. And all he wants us to do is give thanks. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. He's not asking for very much from us. He just wants us to accept his love and, and render him thanks. So I'm going to pause there tonight. And I just want you to think about this as you go home. We're going to go crazy in the next seven days, cooking and preparing and cleaning, and you're going to have relatives over and friends. And I'm not in any way downplaying. That's important. Festal meals are so important for community, and they're important for family, and you should be with your family. But what I want you to do is read this passage a couple of times between now and next Thursday when you have your Thanksgiving dinner. And I want you to read it on Sunday before you come to church. And when you're standing in church, just turn to the person next to you, especially if they don't go to Bible study and blow their mind. Turn to the person next to you and say, Happy Thanksgiving. And they say, yeah, Thursday's going to be great. And they go, no, I mean this Thanksgiving. This Eucharist, this Eucharistia. Why do you think we call communion Eucharistia, Eucharist? It is the act of giving thanks. Because in response to Jesus dying for our sins, dying a horrible death on the cross that's coming 10 hours after he said these words, there is nothing we can do other than just love him and thank him and feast royally on the table. I'm not talking about next Thursday and stuffing yourself with turkey. I'm talking about being in church on Sunday, feasting on Holy Communion. Feast. Celebrate it. The liturgy should be a joyous experience. Most of us look like we would rather be in a hundred other places than church. We look bored. We look like we're thinking about everything but. I want you to think about these things when you're sitting in church on Sunday. And just give thanks. And, and at least especially here at St. Mary, when the choir starts singing, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for... Give thanks. 